river's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm a downdoor Welcome to the Track Quest Podcast. James Orr, Bob the Bowhunter Borland. Going on, Bob? How much, buddy? Just uh, talking some blacktails tonight. Painful. Painful. I don't know about Pain. that. It's painful because we don't have a tag right now because we tried to get a big muley. Well, that was our only archery deer I opportunity. Know. So uh, it is painful yeah. to sit and listen to it right now. But uh, it is. It's my first time not having a blacktail tag in my pocket since I started hunting ever. Yeah, um, but no, it's awesome. I'm been living. Uh, I've been living blacktail hunting vicariously through uh, guys like uh, Chris Tipton, Matt Starley. I've been just harassing those guys. As a matter of fact, I just got a a couple texts from Matt and some videos. So I'm hoping I don't know what what those are all about, but I'm looking forward to checking them out. Um, you know, all my friends that are blacktail hunting right now. I've been, you know, just send them text every night. What are you seeing? How's it going? And I wish I was out there. And, and you know what? I, I need to get out there. I need to, it's no excuse. I need to get out there and start scouting. I'm going to yeah, try to go out this weekend and, and look around. Yeah. After doing this, uh, this podcast, I'm, I was planning on doing the same this week. I've just been kind of dragging my feet family time, but I'm going to drag my daughter out, I think on Friday and head up to my old mountain and uh, do some poking around before season and then after season just because I know there's still some few big ones up there. and I haven't hunted them in long enough. It's time time to quit talking about it and get back after it. So, Yeah, I'm, it's hard for me to get super excited just because my desired hunting ground is a couple hours away, but I do have some local stuff here to, to mess with, and I, I should go out and – and have a look around and and whatnot. We've got some other uh, blacktail guys that we want to get on, and um, hopefully we can make that happen. And I know that most of our listeners are in whitetail country or mule deer country, and they're not blacktail folk. And I don't know. I think that anyone that bow hunts deer can take something away from these podcasts, uh, even if it's from you know blacktail deer or whatever. Um, but selfishly, I, I just can't help myself but to want to uh, put a little bit of blacktail content out there because uh, I, I love the, the deer so much. Yeah, for sure. There's, uh, you know, I, th- I think it doesn't tie a lot into the mule deer, even though, as Tom said, they're a descendant of the mule deer. But it's very similar to the whitetail side of things, for sure. Uh, just because yeah. I think the country they live in is a little thicker and you're not uh you're not doing especially these late archery hunts you're not really glassing and all that good stuff so you're stand hunting you're using scents you're you know tom's super into the calls and the scents and i haven't talked to anybody in a while that's been been uh that involved in it so it's kind of cool to kind of have a little refresher you know i got a couple buddies that are real hardcore on the rattling and stuff like that but it just brought me back to yeah. years ago, me studying up on all the scents and trying all the different things I tried over the years. So it's definitely some things to learn for sure. Yeah, definitely. I, I picked up quite a few little 
little things that I'm gonna want to implement or learn from uh, from Tom and um, yeah, I hope you guys uh, uh, enjoy this one and uh, definitely be checking uh, us out on Instagram if you guys are listening to this right now before Thanksgiving because we're giving away a Kafaro backpack on Instagram and tell your friends about it. Uh, yep. Here's some blacktail action for you guys. Yeah, we got uh, we haven't even announced who it is, but it's Tom Ryle, and uh, check him out oh, too yeah. on. Uh, pnwbowhunting.com he does a blog there we talk about it in the podcast but but uh, check that out he he's done a ton put out a ton of information on blacktails just for us uh, blacktail nuts out there uh, unselfishly yeah. so it's a lot of work he puts into that and there's a lot of good info there so check that out too Tom Ryle hey James hey James Orr and we got uh, Bob uh, Borland here all right. How's it going? Good, Tom. How you doing? Thanks for uh, coming on here. Yeah. Well, thanks for uh, having me. Looking forward to it. You bet. We love uh, we love talking blacktails, and you're the master. <laughs> so here we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know that I would say that. <laughs> I, I might be I might be obsessed, but I don't know that I'm a master. Well, obsessed. We'll take what, that. What, obsessed. That's, we'll start with that. He says, "What is it? Uh, what is it about these uh, black-tailed deer that get some of us so obsessed, Tom?" Um, I don't know. I think, I think frustration. You know, I mean, ultimately, if you if you grew if you grew up in the Pacific Northwest hunting black-tailed deer, um you know, it's it's kind of a tough go. And I, I think with social media, you see so many more deer harvested because people are taking pictures and everyone's got a cell phone and everyone's posting everything. So it, it's really cool to see a lot of people, especially kids and young people, you know, with their first buck. And, and some of those deer I, I drool over because, you know, after a lifetime of, of hunting these deer, you know, I, I haven't shot bucks like some of these kids are shooting, you know. And at yeah, the end of the absolutely. day, it's not about the, it's not about the antlers for me anyway, but, um, I think just the elusive nature of blacktails and the fact that it's so thick and, um, you don't see bucks very often. And when you do, usually they're just, you know, little four corns and yearlings that are hanging around with does. And so the allure is kind of the mystery behind blacktails for me. And, um, I guess that's that's part of the obsession is just trying to figure them out. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people that hunt mule deer and other creatures, their scouting often involves actually seeing the deer, <laughs> and yeah. especially before trail cameras, like blacktails, you're going off of other things for the most part. Tracks, you know, you're you're hunting maybe something that somebody else had seen or like, you know, somebody's uncle's brother yeah. saw, you know, because <laughs> you only get exactly. that little window to see them and people don't believe it. But I know James and I talk a lot and, and even where I used to live, I would know that the rut was starting when you would start to see deer, you know, hit along the highway the rest of the year. You drive that stretch, right. and you wouldn't see anything, not one deer. And then come the end of October, beginning of November, all of a sudden you're like, oh, 
the black tail are out all of a sudden. Yeah, and that that is funny you say that because that that became one of my scouting techniques. Um, you know, same thing. I used to actually work in Oregon when I lived up here in Washington um, for a number of years, and I would commute to Portland, you know, a couple days a week, and I got to um, I got to where I was driving in October, and I was taking all these detour routes looking for road kills and and even just deer sightings, uh, and then I would kind of mark those things or remember where they were and then and then start using Google Earth to figure out, okay, why <laughs> why a deer crossing the road here and, and you know, or if you see a nice buck hit on the side of the road, just kind of take a note of that. And, you know, a lot of times you can't put anything together around that kind of information. But, you know, like you say, you have to go with any information you have. And uh, so I started kind of collecting information year-round and that's kind of how I approach it now is I'm hunting 365 days a year at some point um it's just a matter of when I'm actually carrying a bow with me is is the only difference yeah absolutely I where I live we can't hunt blacktails in the late season archery in the particular unit I live in which is the Tioga unit so I almost get bummed out when I see nice bucks around here because I'm like oh you know, I can't yeah. even go after him, but when I do see a nice buck in a unit that I can go after him, it doesn't matter what time of year. We all know it's like, yeah, he lives there. It's just a matter of getting in there and putting the pieces together and trying to figure out what that buck's all about. I mean, I think that's what's so neat about him is they do have such a small home range on the coast. And, um, yeah. you know, you can try to uh, uh, figure him out. Like we said, you see, you know, you see him getting hit on the highway. You might catch him uh in the velvet, or you might catch them around Halloween, you know, chasing a doe, but otherwise they're, they're such a recluses. Yeah. And, and the older they get, just like whitetails and muleys, but the older bucks get, the more they conserve energy and the more they, their home range kind of shrinks. Um, you know, that the only time they're really going to put any kind of distance on is, is in that sort of seeking phase of the rut and trying to really breed does. Um, but other than that, um, they're they're pretty much staying put, and they're just masters at slipping out from underneath you or letting you walk right by. And you know, I I, I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but if I shot a buck one time out of a tree stand, and this deer did like a thirty yard loop around my tree, and then just crashed down in the ferns. And you know, you're in a tree stand; uh, it's probably eighteen twenty feet up on a steep side hill. And I climbed out of the tree, and I, you know, I watched this buck go down, um, you know, probably no more than 30 yards from the base of my tree. I could not find that deer <laughs> in the ferns and and the blowdown and stuff. And it, it just basically was like a wet noodle, and it it slid down and got underneath a log. And um, you know, my point is, is with the ferns and the undergrowth, these animals are tough to see. And I have tons of trail cam pictures of bucks that if you actually look at the picture for what it is, the back line of that deer, you know, the top of his back is still under the the fern line. So, you know, even a buck standing there at 30, 40 yards in the big timber and ferns, you know, you, you're looking for a muzzle or antlers or parts of an ear. You're not looking for a whole deer. So I, I think, you know, these deer are there. We just have a much tougher time seeing them than sitting on an outcropping and glassing up muleys you know so yeah i 
I've actually seen a blacktail in my yard just go over to where I didn't mow or I need to weed whack, you know, where it's just a little bit tall. And then just yeah. bed down and disappear right in the yard. I'm like, he, I, and then see him move a little bit. Oh, he's still there. But yeah, they are just masters at disappearing for sure. Um, what about, I know you have some experience with whitetails and I know you did a, uh, you were on the, the Hunt Back Country podcast. I think it was episode 45. And you guys, you did a really good job uh, illustrating to the rest of the country, you know, black-tailed deer and their habits and, you know, kind of the the rundown for uh, the guys that don't know much about them. Um, mm-hmm. But um, as far as, like, you know, speaking to black-tailed hunters, um, you know, how, how do they differ from, you know, the other deer species that you've hunted? And, um, you know, maybe we should also start to dive into you know, some of the more uh, advanced tactics that you're employing nowadays. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, genetically speaking, the, the, the mule deer is actually a descendant of blacktails, not the other way around. Uh, I think that's the latest science on that. And I think, you know, a lot of blacktail hunters, myself included, tend to feel that a blacktail actually acts more like a whitetail but the differences are, are, I think, a byproduct of, you know, where they live. Naturally, we have a much different environment here than, say, eastern Oregon, eastern Washington, or then, say, east the rest of the country for whitetails. So, um, you know, in, in whitetail country, we, we would look at, you know, it's a lot of patchwork of, of cropland and, and, uh, you know, CRP fields and, and irrigation ditches and roads. And and it's kind of easy to dissect the landscape and look at prevailing wind patterns and, um, you know, look for funnels. And I think funnels are probably the number one tactic that that we've used successfully on, on whitetails. I say we because most of the whitetail hunting I did was with other people, um, you know, making videos and whatnot. But, you know, that being said, I, the, the nature of a mature whitetail buck, the sneaky nature, the, the, the ability to hide, you know, pretty much in thin air. Uh, you see these monster bucks coming out of Kansas and Illinois and Iowa that, you know, they're shot, you know, 30 yards off the road next to the school bus stop. It's, be, it's just kind of that's, that's that's kind of what you think of when you think of a big blacktail. You see these deer come come out of the woodwork uh, during the rut. You wonder where the heck have these deer been living for the last eight years. Um, but I think you know, in terms of tactics, I, I try to use funnels to my advantage here uh, in the western uh, part of the western Washington, western Oregon. I have yet to have a funnel really pay off for me. Um, I, I think the only way I would define a funnel. That, that it has worked for me is is basically trail intersections. So if I can find a spot, you know, coming off a knoll or something where a, a trail intersects with another trail at the bottom of that, um, and then maybe there's a third trail that, that tees into that a short distance away, I look at playing the odds. And if I've got three trails that funnel into one, then I'm I'm up in my odds of seeing some deer activity as opposed to randomly setting up a tree stand over something that looks kind of good. Um, 
Not to say that can't work either. But mm, like it also me, can not work a lot, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can look at some beautiful country, and, you know, I've, I've set up stands that I think, oh, this looks great. You know, I can just picture a buck cruising through here, and, you know, three, four, eight days later, you haven't seen a deer. Um, and, and then, you know, you can drive home from that hunt and see three in your driveway, and you're just like, what the heck? So, so you know. You alluded to you alluded to scouting year round and um, you're getting to tree stands um, and tree stand placement. Are you, uh, are you prepping trees um, well before season? Are you hanging stands before season? Are you hunting mobile? Um, How many sites are you hunting in a, you know, in a given week? Um, Maybe break down some of that. Yeah, so, um, yeah, tree stands are number number one go-to for me, a tactic. I, I actually do prefer to hunt on the ground, but I, I do like to set uh, tree stands for different wind conditions and different places. And usually I'll use trail cameras, um, not as much as I used to because I hate getting them stolen, but um, I will use trail cameras to kind of do my scouting. And I'm really looking for does with most of my trail camera scouting work I'm, I'm thinking about hunting during you know that that pre-rut period now here in Washington we can we can apply for a multi-season permit which allows you to hunt every available season um, following the rules of that season but Washington also has uh, a stipulation that you can shoot a bow during rifle season so you can wear hunter orange hunt the rifle season with a rifle tag or a multi-season tag and you can hunt with your bow during that season and during those season dates but you have to follow the rules so you're not shooting does with your bow during rifle season you have to shoot bucks and follow all the antler restrictions and all of that that being said i tend to try to 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 do that rather than buying just a regular over-the-counter archery tag um, I would rather hunt the rifle season dates um, with my bow and have less time in the field because I feel like my odds are better. Um, and so that being said, I will do most of my scouting looking and, for does. And those dates are what, Tom? Paul, uh, uh, put me on the spot here. I don't have my regs in front of me, but... Um, You're talking end of uh, October, beginning of November. Yeah, so, for example, tomorrow is the late rifle season, opens up, um, that's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then uh, the early rifle season, I don't really hunt all, I only hunt the last week at the most, Um, and that's usually, you know, that week going into Halloween. Um, So those are the only days I really care about, the, the five days leading up to Halloween, and then this late season, which kicks off tomorrow, and it's only four days, but... Um, you know, I feel like if I've done my homework, I'm going to be walking into a spot using calls, using scent drags, and I'm going to be using the wind to my advantage and hopefully luring a buck out. And most of the deer that I shoot, again, I'm not, you know, looking for big antlers and stuff like that. For me, it's about the experience and rattling or calling in a buck. And if I can make something happen and get a great shot, I'm going to, I'm going to fill my tag, um, that being said, I, you know, I only hunt a day or two, usually a year, to fill my tag. But that's, again, when I'm carrying a bow. I'm hunting year-round, getting prepped for that. So 
backing up to your earlier question, so I look for does. I find out where those core doe areas are, and these are areas where does are hanging out year-round. And those are going to be the areas that pull bucks into. So there will be resident bucks that live there that you may or may not see very often, but those magic days in late October and then here starting, uh, you know, this mid-November time period uh, when peak breeding is really occurring, um, bucks are cruising and they're looking for does. So those does will be there, and um, I just let the bucks come to me. I'll use tree stands, ground blinds, hunt on the ground. Um, I do a lot of still hunting. It's my favorite way to hunt because I like to just be on the ground one-on-one and just move and adjust my my direction based on wind and and habitat and what looks good and just kind of play the conditions as I go. Are you, are you hunting, um, snow like, like cascade blacktails at all? Or are you hunting mostly valley bucks or coast bucks or? Mostly, way enough, I did live in the Willamette Valley for a number of years. So, I mean, think of it more like that kind of country. Um, I have okay. hunted the coast range in Oregon, um, you know, not a lot though. And, you know, it's steep. It's different, kind of a different style of hunting. There, I think you might be better served in that real steep country to set up, um, you know, using topography features more than I would in a valley deer situation, you know, hunting timberlands and uh, clear cuts and stuff like that. Right. Bob's got uh, experience hunting them in the Cascades where there's like one buck per uh, 20 miles or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that one set of tracks that leads to nowhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was actually going to ask you that. If you, if your hunting has adjusted since, I, I know for me, since I quit logging up there and and the you guys have the same predation issues that we do here in Oregon with no hound hunting for bears and mountain lions and Right. And all that it's kind of washed up up in the mountains where I've hunted, and that's why I was excited to get you on here because you're kind of more the the urban deer master. But uh, do you feel yeah. like the, that helps with the predation issues, kind of hunting lower? Yeah, I mean, honestly, um, for me, a lot of that kind of became a natural progression out of just not having a ton of time to you know, busy work and family life and stuff, just not having enough time to get out and, and spend a week of scouting before the season or, or in the summer, two or three scouting trips and hanging stands and cameras and whatnot. I just don't have the time to do that. So I kind of have to go where the opportunity is. And so I started I started hunting more close-to-home type stuff that I can get to within an hour or two, um, kind of in that radius and, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's opened up more opportunities, and I think there's obviously less uh, predation issues. I think there's other issues, um, but but yeah, I don't know. I don't see a dramatic change in deer numbers down low. I think migratory deer are, are certainly seeing more of that impact. Yeah, for sure. My wife are you seeing a? I'm started hunting lower. <laughs> <laughs> That's what she said. I, I, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I used to put in for tags. Um, they were, I would guess you'd call them, you know, cascade blacktails or bench legs. But I used to put in for tags 
that were in those kind of migratory type hunts. And I used to love just going up in the snow and snowshoes and just putting on a pack. And half of it was for the experience of cutting a track and trying to follow it out. And, you know, I never, never was successful doing that, but I sure enjoyed doing it. <laughs> Very cool. So, um, I also hunt, uh, um, I wouldn't say urban, but I mean, I'm hunting, you know, close to ranches and, um, you know, mostly hunting public, uh, or timber company lands. Um, yeah. but I'm, I feel like if I get close to sheep or get close to livestock, that my chances are go up that the folks in that area are doing their deal diligence on keeping the predators back because they have to for their animals. Right. And it seems like the deer feel comfortable in that situation also. And, um, so it's really put me, uh, hunting uh them closer to people which is um different but there are more deer over you know that way is what i found yeah yeah i I try to target um kind of rural county lands or uh chunks of dnr or state land um or I actually really enjoy hunting public land like the capital state forest here in olympia it's it's overrun with lots of different recreationalists, which I think is great. You know, there's ORV parks, mm-hmm. there's you know a lot of horseback and and uh, motorcycles and whatnot, and mountain biking trails all over the place. And I love those spots for bow hunting because um, you know with all that activity and deer blacktails being as adaptable as they are, and I think that's another trait they share with whitetails is you know they, they they're okay. Um, assimilating and fitting in uh, to all those different activities. Um, so if you if you sort of start parsing out all those different things and where the pressure comes from, and um, you know, I think you can you can uncover some really neat little gem spots that people just simply don't bother with because they feel like, well, I wouldn't you know, there's, nobody would hunt in there. That's pretty much why I would go in there. <laughs> you know. And, and I so, think that tree stands aren't that utilized in the blacktail woods. And so like you just alluded to, like you, you don't need a lot of space. Like we're used to out yeah. West needing a lot of space for, for hunting. Right. But when you start thinking about a tree stand set, uh, I've killed a couple bucks <laughs> in a really small little piece. Um, yeah. Very small. Um, Yep. Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, stuff that people would just drive by, and those bucks are living right there and driving. Yeah, I met an old-timer who had a blueberry farm, and he was really angry because the deer would come in and just mow down his blueberries. And he got a permit, or a, I think he got some damage control tags from the state, and um, that's I, I found out about it through a guy I was teaching bow hunter education with. And he said, yeah, you got to come out and check out this property because I'm going to be deployed. He was in the military. He's like, I'm going to be deployed. Maybe you could you could hunt on it. And so uh, long story short, I met this old guy. And, I mean, you'd never know this farm was even there. It was tucked in behind, back behind a neighborhood development. But it was... Uh, I think it backed up to a big green belt in a in a big swamp in a in a in a wetland designated wetland area. So I think there was probably 250 300 acres back in there that you'd never know was there unless you looked at it on aerial photo or something. Um, and I went back there on the back edge of his berry field or his 
patch and I put up a tree stand and, you know, I shot a deer the first evening I was in there. And, uh, so yeah, I think there's, you know, there's just, you just don't need that much space. And, and, uh, I think it's just going where the deer are and figuring it out. And tree stands for me, I, I have a lone wolf alpha hang on stand. That's probably 30 years old. It was one of their first stands and I love that thing. And I, I put it on my backpack and I'll just hike with that. And I carry about 15, 20 tree steps. And, um, if I'm going to kind of be in that mode of scouting and hunting at the same time, I'll just go to a place, you know, I'll just hike until I find a place that looks good and I'll set up for the last couple hours of daylight. And, uh, I've had that payoff before too. Very cool. Yeah. I love kind of this mobile stand on your back hunting. It can become really fun. Um, I'd really like to get into calling and I know, um, your maybe give us a little background on um i guess how uh you got hooked up with uh larry and maybe turn you know drive that down the road into into calling and and where you're at today with with calling blacktails yeah um wow wow that's a that's a big one um so yeah i met so Larry was always kind of my hero um, in, in the hunting world. Um, I think probably when I was in high school, I came across his cassette tapes, and, and this whole idea of bugling elk was something that fascinated me. And I was obviously hunting at the time. I was not bow hunting back then. Figure that's in the mid '80s or so. Well, then you know, years later, I was I was in college and. Uh, I was doing some volunteer work with the U.S. Forest Service and the Elk Foundation on a, uh, uh, we were radio calling, collaring some elk up in uh, Mount Baker. And uh, we were having difficulty finding these elk, basically. Um, there was a herd of elk in there we were driving around looking for. And, and uh, long story short, I said, I know somebody that could help us. <laughs> so I, I took some maps. And I sent him down to Larry, um, and I knew that he was a master at sort of picking out where elk like to be by looking at a topo map. And, you know, he's, he marked up my maps and sent them back, and sure enough, we go up there, and we find this whole herd of elk bedded right where we <laughs> – one of the spots that he'd circled. So um, that was kind of cool. Um, it kind of started a relationship, uh, long-distance pen pal kind of thing with Larry and, and – um, when I got out of school, you know, I, I was like, man, I want to, I want to, I just want to learn from him. I want to work for him. I want to film. I want to design game calls. I want to do all of that. And so, uh, I went down to the annual elk camp in Reno, Nevada with the Elk Foundation and Larry was there and I just, um, struck up another conversation with him. I'd seen him at other trade shows, the ISD shows and stuff, but, um, yeah, um, I started working for him, um, and it was probably the coolest part of my, uh, I don't know, my hunting slash professional <laughs> career, uh, just because it was, it was a real privilege to, to actually spend time in the woods learning from someone like Larry, and, and obviously in and out of the field, he's just a class act, um, you know, role model, I think anyone could look up to. And, um, 
you know, he was a game calling master. And so for me, it's like, if you want to learn something, you go to the best and, and learn from the best. And, um, just seeing his process of, of designing calls and making calls and mastering those sounds and really, really not giving up on call designs until you get the sound you're looking for, um, is kind of what, what I, what I really thrived on there and, and uh, in his work ethic. So he had, you know, uh, a deer grunt call that he designed, and um, it was an adjustable reed situation. There was an O-ring that you could move in and out to change the pitch and tone of that call. And so we used that call. We used it in making the Wiley Whitetails video. Um, we called in some deer on that. And then, uh, you know, I just started using it on blacktails. And... Um, um, I've got it down to the point where I modified the call a little bit, um, and I've also just focused on one sound, and it's a very soft doe bleat. And I don't grunt. I don't do the fawn balls as much as I used to. Um, I just make a very soft, almost like a, you know, think of a little sheep, you know, going, meh. It, it's very, I, I, I did it over the phone on a recent uh, radio show and it sounded like uh it sounded like a really loud grunt so i'm not going to do it here but <laughs> it's just a very soft dobly um and so is it, does, it sound, does it sound similar to the primos can call or is it not so whiny it's not so whiny and not so long this is a very short like meh. it's very very it's meh. you know like a meh. and what kind of response very soft. are you getting from that I've, in the last three seasons, in the last week in October, I have gone out and within 30 minutes of entering the woods and blowing that call like that two or three times, I've seen a buck coming straight to me. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. <laughs> I mean, it, and, and it's gotten to the point now where I'm like, okay, there's something to this. Um, it happened here this uh, last week in October. I was with inside of my vehicle and I blew on that call and next thing you know, I, I see a buck coming and he went past me. I blew it again. He turned around 180 and walked in. He was about 12 to 15 yards broadside, just standing there. And it's, it's such a soft call, but the key is the timing. I think that's the biggest thing. I've used doe fawn bleats year round with no response whatsoever. I'm looking at bucks and I'm blowing and I get no response. I think the key is that last week in October when the, the the hormones are running rampant in these bucks and any sound coming out of the woods that sounds like a doe is going to get attention. And um, it it's just works. It, that's all I can say. Um, so how did you come to that this conclusion? I mean, the getting it soft and short and I mean I'm I'm sure you've played with this over the years. Uh just yeah, just trial and error and, and, and I actually have, have have you know messed around with deer that I'm not gonna shoot, you know, just to see how they'd react. Right. The other call that that um I I finally witnessed for the first time, it's been a number of years now, but I was set up on the ground and I had excuse me, I had two four corn bucks. Um there was a doe that came by four corn 
kind of was following her. I wasn't going to take that deer. And then a few minutes later, he came back, and then another four-corn came out, looked like a twin, and they one snort wheezed like three yards in front of me. And I'd never heard that out of a blacktail before. And the other buck, you know, ears back, hair bristled, and they were in a standoff three yards in front of me. And it was the coolest thing because I got to hear that vocalization, you know, firsthand, real time, in the moment. And, again, that was that last week in October. Um, so a snort wheeze is an aggression call, um, and it's not one that I would recommend using. But to to see that level of competition and know that, you know, a doe had just walked through there, you know, it just shows you kind of where things are in terms of, like, a, the rut climate. You know, things are in high gear at that point. So I think, you know, if you're, you're using a Primo's can or anything like that, I think you can still have, um, you know, the same result. Are you getting this call? Are you using, like, a, um, like a, like, like the Jones or Point Blank, their, their little, um, doe bleeder, is that what you're using or the, no, it's, uh, it's the grunt call, but I don't, it's the grunt call, but I don't use the tube and I flip it around. Oh, okay. And, and I suck air in instead of blow through it. And the reason I suck okay. the air in is because, you know, especially in cold mornings, if it's freezing out, you, the condensation forms on the reed and that, that reed will stick to the soundboard. And okay. so if you're sucking air in, you're never putting your, your warm breath over that call. Warm breath. So, mm. yeah. And then, okay. you know, I, so I don't use the tube at all. Um, even bucks that I shot, I shot a buck a couple years ago that was grunting, tending a doe, and he walked by me at about six or eight yards in the ferns, and I heard him grunting before I ever saw him. And it's such a soft sound. I mean, I, you know, I don't know why, but I did see a buck in Kansas, a whitetail grunt really loud. And, but I've just never seen a blacktail grunt that loud. It's not that I, they can't. I actually, I actually had a uh, blacktail, uh, year before last opening night in the stand, which would have been like, you know, November, whatever that is, seventh, eighth or whatever. And this uh, doe group came down, down, and this buck came in grunting. I, I was didn't even know what it was. I was shocked. I was like, "What? Yeah. And is that a, is that really happening?" But he came in <laughs> really loud. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think they do. I think they can. Obviously, you saw it firsthand. I just have never yeah. seen it. I and mean, all the all the blacktails I've seen grunting, it's really soft. It's that tending grunt, you know, but. That buck I saw in in, in uh, Kansas about rocked me out of my tree stand. I mean, I hear this yeah. huge grunt, and I turn around, and there's this 140-inch buck standing there at 30 yards, you know. And I'm like, holy cow, that came out of you? Um, so, you know. Do you think that the, the calling of deer, um, the uh, uh, doe bleeding, uh, grunting, or rattling, I mean, it's got to be – it's just got to be a lot better when you get into high deer densities or places where there's a chance of migration versus like I've noticed my luck uh, on the coast and low, low deer densities. It's almost like, I feel like they hear it and they're like, ah, 
they know all the deer in the area and they're just, they just don't buy into it? Or do you think that that's just, you know, so, uh, you know, my own, uh, idea. I'd, I'd love to hear your idea on that. I, I don't know what to say about that because I have the same experiences. In fact, our late archery season opens up, um, like November, I still want to say it's around the 22nd. And I've found that I have rattled, I have called for, I mean, <laughs> years during that late November time period, and I've never had a, re- uh, a response at all. Um, and, and these are in the same areas I'm hunting now. Um, so I've hunted, I don't know. I, I really don't know what to tell you on that. I think that where you have deer spread out, um, obviously you're not going to get uh, maybe as much a response as when you have more density and more competition. Um, so it, it's just hit and miss. So do you think I it's think. a timing thing too, though? Do you think with low deer densities it will work via timing? Is that what you're saying, like earlier is better? Or? Yeah, I mean, I think I've always said that the best time to rattle in a buck of any, you know, any species is in that early pre-rut because – and, and I and I also would say that most of the deer you're going to rattle in are going to be two and a half and three and a half year olds. They're going to be those feisty teenagers that are going to come in, you know, to the call right away. Um, I think if you want to call in a bigger, mature animal, it's going to have to be closer to that peak breeding period, you know, the first week in November. Um, not to say it can't happen earlier, but it's just kind of like calling elk, you know. It's, it's easier to call in a raghorn three by four than it is in a big old right. round out. But six by seven. is it me or is bugling bulls uh, super popular again and rattling blacktails ever so popular? Like uh, it's almost like the main tactic for guys to go to Southern Oregon around Thanksgiving and put the horns together. Uh, yeah, I don't know that. I mean, I, I I'm the only one I know that rattles. Blacktails. I I've talked to so many hunters, and most people I talk to never even tried it. And I've been doing it for years. Okay. And I I think I got lucky because I started messing around with it in college, um, and there was I think looking back, I had a pretty sweet setup back then. I didn't know how good it was until it was gone. Um, but there was a a big kind of a I lived I went to college up in Bellingham, Washington, and and there's you know some some great blacktails up there but there was a there was a big county park property um adjacent to some private timber company land and i had access to that timber company land and i rattled in bucks just repeatedly in there um and then now it's a big housing development but um i so i got a i got success early rattling but i've i've gone years and had horrible success rattling um so I so do you have have you isolated any do's or don'ts? Um, I think it's it's a pretty detailed topic that would be better to show in a video. I think, but um, I, I right. do have a cadence, and I've outlined this in my blog. I think I have. Um, I just did a post on calling blacktails recently before the season, and I, I put in my rattling sequence in there in kind of in words, kind of a little playbook on how to do it and the timing of when to do what um, based on the calendar days. So, um, I mean, people could go look at that. It's, you know, PNWBowHunting.com. But um, basically, for me, it's 
you start early in the season, you're going to start light. You know, it's more curiosity. You're not going to be doing big knockout, dragout fights because that doesn't happen until, you know, the very end of October, early November. So you want to always tailor your calling to what's happening in the deer woods. And, and that's the first thing that people, I think, get wrong is, you know, if you're not, if you're not matching the, the rut climate and the mood and the temperament of the rut, uh, phases within, you know, your hunting season and your, and, you know, your approach, you, you're going to, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb to the deer. So you have to kind of match that. And, you know, early on, once the velvet comes off, they start establishing that pecking order. And, um, you know, you can rattle in deer right after that, right? As soon as that velvet comes off, because you'll see a lot of light sparring going on. But the rattling is just that. It's light sparring. It's not clanking antlers together. It's more about, you know, kind of more clicking the tips together and more mashing and rubbing sounds than, than, than full, full on, you know, I'm going to take your head off type fighting. That you just reserve that for later in the month. Right. So how much later in the month when you talk about stepping up the rattling game because <clears throat> i know our season up here where i hunt opens this weekend coming up which is you know the week before thanksgiving and i've yeah i've had a, a, not much luck rattling i have buddies that do it a ton and i'm just wondering i'm kind of putting it together you know you're talking about this and it just seems like maybe that's that's the key is the timing because i've like you said, I've done it thousands of times, and I've had it work. Yeah, one, one time, yeah. a big buck just came charging in, and my brother drilled it, and it was awesome. But that was it. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's that's that was my first experience too, and uh, and I've had many years of of beating my head against the wall, wondering what I, what I'm doing wrong. Um, and I, so the date I think is October fifteenth. I kind of look at that mid October. That second half of the month is when things start heating up. And I think that's when you can put a little bit more volume, maybe, you know, the frequency of your calling, a little longer rattling session, you know, 20 to 40 seconds, and then waiting 20 minutes and then doing another session. I tend to try to visualize. Um, I do this with elk and every and any kind of game calling. I try to visualize the scenario that I'm creating. And so if you do that, um, I think it, it kind of keeps you on track. So, you know, deer don't just walk up to each other and start beating each other up, right? They just, they, they do the posturing thing. Um, they might later in the month of October hit hard, but early in the month of October, they're not going to do that. So you've got to, you've got to, um, you know, match that. And then, you know, it's it's like elk. Um, usually, you know, you're trying to just locate an elk. And once you locate them, you start working on them and start cranking them up and getting them excited. And, and you know, that was something Larry was always a master at doing is, you know, basically turning an elk inside out uh, in his own skin by just working on him for a couple hours until he was ready to come in and commit. And I think that you know, you just have to um, do the same thing with with deer calling. You have to think about what what you're trying to set up. And, you know, what's the audible sound you're trying to create? What's the scenario? 
and try to match that and be as accurate with it as you can. One thing I would say about rattling that bit me in the butt too many times is I'll set up and I'll do two or three rattling sessions uh, 20 minutes apart, you know, waiting good 20, 30 minutes between each one. And then, you know, I'm, I'm an hour and some odd minutes invested in this. And then I go, well, nothing came in. I get up and I take three steps and boom, you know, I got a buck standing there and looking at me that came in. I've done it. And that happened. Done it a couple times. Yeah. That's the biggest mistake I've made rattling. Even when I'm convinced I would have heard a deer coming or, you know, nothing's coming. It's, you know, bright and sunny and it's 62 degrees. Like, forget it. I'm just going to get up and start hiking again, and then, boom, I get busted. I I was doing exactly what you said, running a decoy, and I about an hour into the set, and I set the horns down, and I set my bow down, and I walked over there and pulled the Montana decoy out of the ground, and there was a buck (laughs) right there in yard, a big buck just staring at me, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that, that seems to yeah. be how they do it. They roll in. Yeah, so I did a. I was sitting tree stand daylight till dark in Kansas, and uh, you know you do that a couple of days in a row, and it starts to get to you. And then the, I don't know, a couple of days into it, I was like, you know, I need to get down and take a break. And I I did the you know three sixty degree scan, and making sure there was nothing anywhere in sight and I literally got halfway down this tree and about I don't know probably 110 inch buck jumps the fence and (laughs) standing there staring at me hanging on the side of this tree you know so it it, it always happens in the you know the least opportune times um but that's on so let's try to learn from it um Speaking of, uh, I'd brought up decoys. I know you'd made one. Um, are you, are you utilizing that this year? Is that, uh, did that make the bag of tricks? And yeah, so last year, um, I'm not using that. I have a carry light decoy that I bought a number of years back. It's just their standard deer decoy. And I, I painted it to replicate a, a black tail and, um, just because it was so bright and look like a white tail i wanted to make it look more like a black tail and and uh i i've used that for several years and i've i've kind of used it more to to learn than to actually hunt over um though i have i have hunted over it a number of times but i put a trail camera on it during the the pre-rut and rut and see you know what happens it's been pounded on a couple times um, last year it actually got shot three times in the shoulder on private <laughs> land. It was a really nice group too, whoever did it. Um, uh, I'm oh my God. Like a, Are you using it in conjunction with scents? Yeah, I am. But so I put that decoy, that decoy was on a big clear cut, a private clear cut. And, um, I, once it got shot up, I decided to pull it out and just not even hunt there because obviously people were trespassing in there. Um, but um, I do use scent, and typically what I do is I will do a scent drag um, through a shooting lane, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll run that scent drag probably 80 yards either side of my shooting windows, 
Um, so, for example, I'll I'll drag that uh, scent probably 150 to 200 yards through the area. And what I'm trying to do there is any buck that hits that, I'm wanting them to, you know, hook onto that scent trail and follow it into my shooting lane. And I've had really good luck doing that. Um, I typically will do a figure eight shape kind of uh, around my my location, whether it's a tree stand or a ground blind. And that way, kind of all trails lead to that center of the figure eight. Um, and um, I've had I've had really good luck doing that. Um, it's just one of those things that um, deer deer use. And granted, you're you're kind of mixing things up here. So if you're using estrus urine scent and you're dragging that, well, deer don't deer don't really lay down a scent trail like that. But they do stop and pee frequently um, during the breeding phase. So, so you're sort of playing into that, right? I mean, it's not an exact replication of what happens, but deer are susceptible to scent and they will follow it. Um, but the decoy I'm using now, this for the first time, you just mentioned it. I just bought one of the Montana uh, decoys, the, the squatting doe. Uh, I think it's called Estrus Betty. Um, Okay. I'm going to be setting that up because um, I've got a spot I think that it would look really good in. It's kind of an open, it's got some scotch broom and some, some high grass and there's some big timber and some ferns and it's kind of a nice little edge habitat and I think I'm going to set it up there and do some, some rattling uh, this weekend just to see what happens. What uh, what brand Have you... do you prefer? Like is there a certain brand that you've had the most luck with or a certain type? Yeah, I mean, the most I've the most luck I've had is probably um, James Valley scent. Um, yep, and me too. John Collins, James Col- John Collins runs that scent company, and, and he, it's the real deal. It's good stuff. So I've used that, his scent for some frozen. Is that the stuff you get frozen, like the real? Estrus? Nope. No, but it's it's a it's a um, it's a blend. They they have a bunch of different proprietary blends of uh, mm-hmm. and they're they're mixing torsal glands and musks and real legit urines. Yeah, and they do blends it, and they make the you have to order it from them. They don't sell it on the store like you don't find it like at the Buy Mart or whatever. Yeah, I think you you can. I mean, I think Cabela's even oh, carries it, but they're yeah, and, okay. and it comes in little glass jars. And um, yeah, it does have a shelf life though, and so I'm I'm I in the past I've ordered it directly from from John, but you know if you're buying like the latest shipment that's coming in before hunting season at the, the any sporting goods store, it's going to be fine, and you can refreshen it, um, but generally I keep it in the which, fridge. And which one but, are you? Uh, which one do you like best from them? I know they have like seven or eight recipes and I've been playing, I've played with several of them and I've had some good results with a few of them. Yeah. I, I think the full rut gel, um, is, is full rut gel. my favorite full rut gel and lethal weapon. Those two, okay. um, yeah. I've had the most luck with and, and yeah, like you said, they, they'll grind gland, um, material in there it's like um it's a it's like a gel it's and it's it's the real yeah, stuff i've used like that it's not i had the full rut 
uh, no, the lethal weapon. Yeah, the lethal weapon gel. Mm-hmm. I had it set out yeah. on this trail in Southern Oregon. And I was, uh, uh, you know, keeping, I, I put it in there, I think like October 15th. And then I went back, uh, after Halloween and re-upped it and I, I kept refreshing it. It was on private property and these yeah. deer just started hammering this trail. And I actually have, uh, 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 some trail cam video of a buck doing a scrape, like a whitetail on this trail. Well, that I'd love to see because picking it uh, out. Wow, he urinates in it. He urinates in it and kicks it out. That's amazing because I've never seen it, and I know they do it. I thought, you know, Scott Halligan and I have talked, and and Boyd Iverson back in the day, he and I spent a lot of time comparing notes and sharing trail cam pictures, and and you know, I know they do. Some black tails do scrape like a white tail. I know they all use licking branches. Um, but I've never seen that. I think, and, uh, I think it's, uh, deer densities. I've, I've only noticed it down, down South where those deer yeah. pile in and that all of a sudden there's mayhem because there's so many of them and there's a bunch of them that don't live there. And I've right. noticed just a lot, a lot of activity like that. Um, I actually wow. laughed up a buck doing one also. It was like 17 degrees and he was working a fence line. And it was a big four on one side and a fork and horn on the other. I can see it clear as day. He was a beautiful buck, frozen ground. And he was crunch, crunch, crunch. And then he stopped and laid a scrape with a licking branch. And I was like, oh, my God, I've just, that, that kind of stuff does it for me. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that is amazing. I'd, I'd, I'd love to see it. I just never have um, in the areas that I hunt. But, um yeah, and the other scent I use, and so when I first started using scent, I was using the, the moccasin joe that you see everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and honestly, honestly, I had I had good luck with that stuff. Um, but I don't know, I started using uh, the James Valley scent when I started working with Larry, and it just it was such a better product, and I just liked the gel format rather than just this liquid that was dripping everywhere. And um, it, it's just worked well for me. Um, and then Scott Haugen's got a new line of scent out and I've actually used his scent for the last couple of years. He sent me some samples before he brought it to market and I put cameras on it and I was testing it in the rain and just seeing how long it was, uh, staying intact because that's one of the problems here, you know, Western Oregon, Western Washington is late season brings these heavy rains. And if you put, you know, scent out there, it is going to dilute and wash away over time. And Scott has this compound now that it's kind of like, almost looks like a thick wood glue um, consistency, and it's pretty darn durable in wet weather. So I've been using that the last two years exclusively, and um, I'll, you know, I'll be using it this weekend. Have, have you ever tried, um, like, scent drippers? I have, and um, I think they're phenomenal. Um, we used them a lot on whitetails, and the way those work is, you know, you put the, the liquid in there, and there's kind of this curly cue, looks like a pigtail, kind of a tube, and they're kind of cool because as they they heat up, you know, in the, in the middle of the day, you know, the pressure, I guess, just works a drip out every now and then, and um, those will help deposit scent 
uh, on a kind of a cadence over time. And so um, those are great to put out, like, in front of a tree stand. Uh, if you know you're going to be hunting that stand over the course of the season, maybe not every day, but you want to keep that area interesting for deer, um, you could put up a dripper. Yeah, I I don't know if – I didn't have trail cameras at the time, but back when I was black tail hunting real heavy, I I always used those drippers. And I never – I had one buck kind of come by and check one out, but – like I said, usually the first buck that came in, I was shooting it before I had any time to do anything. But, yeah, all the stands yeah. that I killed bucks out of, and, it, you know, I was kind of, by the end of it, it was more of a superstition thing for me. But I always had a scent dripper out. But, like I said, yeah. I never really I never really had proof of it. It was just always something I was like, well, it worked. I'm going to keep using it. But, yeah, I thought those yeah. were pretty fascinating when you when you figure how they work, you put a little, you know, a few ounces in there and it just drips a little bit when it heats up midday. Yeah. And, yeah. And, but yeah, if you do research on scents, I did a bunch of it years ago and it's like, man, mm-hmm. if, if deer can smell that good, like uh, most of those scents, like all the black tail deer, doe and heat, all that stuff. There's no, mm-hmm. there is no black tail deer farms that farm scent. There's no such thing. There is none. Yeah. So all that's just kind of made up. So. Yeah, exactly. And and that you know what I found people have said, well, why would you use white tail scent on black tail? I'm like, you know, um, because it's deer is a deer, you know. And and I mean, well, I've, yeah, I've made. I can great. tell you from. I can tell you from raising dogs. I had one time had a several bitches in heat. And living mm-hmm. out in the woods, and all of a sudden I had a gray fox show up, and then the next day a coyote. They want—I mean, a dog's a dog. They—they they smelt all those females, and they were there mm-hmm. dancing around in my yard. Well, I'm sure yeah, if, I, if I, there I, was uh, if there was black-tailed deer captive, you know, that you could get the scents from, I'm sure they would probably work better than a white tail. But when that's all you got, yeah, you know. I just haven't. I just haven't had any reason to say that you know it, it's not worth using um and you know i remember being in iowa I, was, I think it was i was out there with larry and i made a big mock scrape and um i just peed in it right there to, you know i just peed right in it and the next day it was hammered i mean yeah. deer tracks all in my yeah pee. i was going to bring that up uh ron french do you, you know ron yeah you know ron yeah oh yep he 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 urinates on uh, that post and gets tremendous uh, footage on that four by four pressure treated post with urine. Oh, yeah. and so after I learned that, I've gone and urinated on buck rubs to come back to them hammering them. I don't know if it's because I urinated yeah. on them or if they were going to hammer them anyway, but yeah. uh, they definitely don't mind human urine at all. Yeah, and so I, you know, I totally agree. And I, so we used to take uh, my little handsaw or whatever. We take handsaw and just make a mox uh, rub, like a signpost rub. Just make a nice big visible rub, and pee on it. And within a couple of days, that thing would just be pounded. Wow. And yeah. what I started doing now is, um, and actually, kind of, you know, Scott Haugen's book is really good. His Blacktail book. Uh, oh, I, I've read it three I, or four times. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I, I took out of there, I started doing, I don't know if he does this, but I think I took the information he provided and I started cutting out the forehead's um, hide 
on, on bucks that I shoot mm-hmm. and I save uh-huh. them and then I will go into a new area and I will just take that buck's forehead <laughs> wearing like surgical gloves and I will rub it on those trees and put that scent from that foreign buck into a new area. And I think that's another way to kind of create some competition. Uh, and, and maybe I've heard of that with the torsal gland, and I've tried it with to no luck. So do you think that gland in the head is more significant? I do, because no, they're not rubbing their tor- tarsal glands up there. They're rubbing their preorbital gland and that forehead gland, you know, that, that waxy, right. yeah. dark patch between the antlers. And so... I just cut that out and I save those and I, you know, they're not going to last forever, but you know, you certainly can use the one from the year prior and take it in there and, and freshen up a rub. Um, and just, you know, again, what are like they right now, doing when they're rubbing that. the torsal glands together, Tom? Well, what they're doing is so they, each deer has that unique, their own unique marker scent and glandular scent. And so, they're peeing on those glands and rubbing them together yep. to rinse to rinse that down into the ground to leave their their mark, and you know it's like a dog peeing on a fire hydrant, and every buck that comes by is going to check that out, and I'm going to cover it up with my own, you know I'm going to be the last one get the last word in here. Okay, yeah, I've got trail cam videos of the bucks doing that. Also, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it is cool to watch. So you're just taking that, that scalp and uh, freezing it and then taking it in the next year and, and use it for some mock rubs? Yep, and I'm, I'm make sure you're wearing, like, surgical gloves. You don't want your human scent sure. on there because deer can, deer can smell and discern, I don't know how many different odors at once. Um, but, yeah. you know, this idea that you're going to, you know, I don't, I generally don't touch anything with my bare skin, and if I can, I don't even let any brush touch my pants when I'm walking in. I, I right. Clip Are you going the rubber boots and yeah, spraying your boots down type of thing? Yeah. Yeah, and the, my boots. I was don't wondering do when you any. talked about doing the figure eight, if it was worth spreading your your own scent and that figure eight to get that scent that scent out there. Because I'm usually like trying yeah. to get into my stand the most ninja possible and not take an extra step anywhere. Well, my rubber boots have never, they don't ride in the truck with me. They don't walk around my garage. They are, they are only put on when I get in the woods. And so they're, um, yeah. And, and I use hand clippers and I wear gloves, rubber gloves so that I can grab branches Mm -hmm. and break them and move them out of the way. But I don't touch anything with my skin. And yeah, I've had good luck doing that. In fact, Boyd Iverson and I spent time (laughs) one summer. We were, we were trying to see how much we could get away with with human scent. And using trail cameras, I actually was dragging my workout shirt into my trail camera, and I was trying to condition the deer in that area to, to basically get used to my scent. And basically, by the end of summer, they were not even reacting to my, my T-shirt. Wow. Like, they were just in wow. there. So, so you got to spend some time with Boyd. Um, yeah, not in the woods, just, uh, you know, conversing. I'd see him at the shows and, and, um, we started once trail cameras became a thing, we started sharing pictures and I've got a DVD he sent me before, gosh, unfortunately before he passed away, but it's, um, yeah, a whole bunch of, um, a whole bunch of trail cam pictures and, and I really 
it's one of my prized possessions now that he's gone because he, you know, wrote me a nice note in there when he sent it to me. Um, I spent a but, bunch of time talking to him on the phone. What a what a stud! Yeah, yeah, he's a great guy. In fact, it was funny because um, turns out he and I were hunting in the same area when I lived down there in uh, Springfield area, and uh, when I was when I left Oregon, I told him about it because I said, "Well, geez, you know, you might as well go start hunting this area." And he said, "Where is it?" You know, I told him where it was, and he started laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and he knew right where I was. <laughs> and I got a so couple of my the listeners, there. For the listeners, uh, Boyd Iverson, uh, uh, Blacktail Trophy Tactics 1 and 2, um, the amazing uh, literature on hunting blacktails. That's kind of any blacktail guy's kind of cut his teeth. Uh, has read that book many times, I would imagine. Um, and yeah. yeah, he was an awesome guy. Um, so yeah, you, you just let it to sheds, shed hunting, uh, uh, a big part of the game for you. And what do they mean as far as hunting blacktails? Yeah, they are. In fact, my, I, I wrote a, I kind of a broken record for me. I wrote this series a number of years back, but it's called, um, postseason scouting and, and really it didn't turn, didn't mean to turn into what it did, but it was really about my approach to, scouting and and really I ramp it up the most right after the season ends because number one if you're done whether you filled your tag or not you can't hunt so you might as well be out in the woods and and learn and you can go and you can start walking these trails you can start looking where all the activity was that season you can start mapping out all the rubs you know you can just get so much fresh sign that you can't get any other time of the year because all the leaves are down you know, trails stick out like a sore thumb, you know, when all the vegetation is, is matted down and, and wet. So, um, yeah, I mean, I do that and then I follow, keep doing that right into, um, you know, early spring and looking for sheds and I map all this stuff out on maps and I just keep track of it year after year after year and I start looking for patterns. And there's one spot that I have that I pretty much find two or three sheds a year in there. Um, and it's just, it's where deer bucks tend to go during the winter or, you know, that, um, I guess, you know, just February, March, they start hanging out in there and that's where they end up dropping antlers. Uh, they may not be How in far is that from where they're rutting, do you think? It's usually very close. Um, I yeah. found that's a, it's a really good question because, um, I have found that where you find sheds is for some reason, it's also where deer tend to rut. Um, that's not always true. Obviously, you can find sheds anywhere. They fall off when they fall off. But um, one of the areas that I get the most rutting action is an area that I find most sheds, too. Okay. So, um, yeah, there's significant... Yeah, they they can be very. Have you picked up sheds on a buck and then managed to uh, to kill them in the same area? Um, no, but I've attempted to. I've got a a pretty nice set of sheds off a buck, and I was trying to I was trying to go one step further. I was trying to rattle in the buck with his own antlers. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh... 
I was going to be epic if it happened. Yeah, I had I had yeah. this match that in the reprod, and I went back in that area, and so I had another one of his antlers from two years prior. So I knew this buck was a resident deer, and I knew exactly where he lived. And he was really elusive to get on camera, but I did find out through my trail cameras that he was still alive. He'd actually regressed a little bit. He was a non-typical, and um, I, I gave it my all. I was in there. I watched the wind, and I tried to rattle that buck in, and I never, ever saw him alive. I've never seen him alive, um, and I'm sure he's gone now because that was a number of years back. But, yeah, I, I mean, I just, yeah, I, yeah. I, that's what I love about hunting is, you know, you can kind of make it what you want. And, um, you know, it's kind of a pipe dream to think you could find some sheds and then rattle in the buck that dropped them. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a cool story? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. It definitely would, for sure. Um, I've, as we're winding down here, I've just got a few more kind of selfish questions for myself. I know, you know, every year it's like I, I should know better, but every year – this time of year, you know, you're like, ah, oh, when's the rut? When are they breeding? When's post rut? When is this? When is that? And then I hunt, I hunt the coast, central coast, mm-hmm. and then I hunt southern Oregon. So I hunt the coast because I live here. So I'm hunting here, you know, uh, at, you know, after work and on, on the weekends or whatever. But then I take an allotment of time if I haven't killed my buck on the coast and go down for the towards the end of season down south. And what I've noticed is the Southern Oregon is really swinging good after Thanksgiving and into December, but the coast, I mean, it's like Halloween is prime and it's over before Thanksgiving even comes. Like as far as, and I'm not talking about them breeding does. I mean, it's over as far as uh, me seeing them move uh, aggressively in daylight hours. Yeah, I mean, I like I was saying before, I, our late archery season starts like November 22nd, and it's like a ghost town. I've never had any luck after mid-November, except for mid-December. <laughs> That's the big exception. Yeah. And you go 28 That's days That's what out. I was leading to. Is, yep. Yeah, I was leading to a lot of guys are really liking the first week of December down south, just really lately, with the weather hasn't been... The snow's been yeah. you know, not not as predictable early, and it seems like December's uh, it's like the rut or it's like the action's moved a few weeks out. Well, what it is, it's the second second estrus cycle, and it creates that right. you know that second rut situation. And, and I've actually right. found that here is to be um, I've rattled in more bucks in the last two weeks of December than any other time. <laughs> And I think it's because wow. competition is higher. And I think if if they hear those antlers in December, they figure there's got to be a hot doe there. Um, so what has been your Bob? Have you hunted that late? Have you hunted them into December? No, I I haven't a ton. I mean, I've had some decent luck. Whatever that last week of season is, which is usually the first week of December up there. Some years, but it's usually kind of weather dependent. Up where up there in the Cascades, usually by back when I was hunting them hard, I haven't hunted them hard in six years or so, but um, the bucks would kind of leave the does later in the season and kind of go back. You know, you could track them in the snow and just follow kind of mm. own buck tracks. And I've had buddies that, I had a good buddy of mine killed a giant up there one year and he was just, you know, looking for tracks in the snow and 
and found where it crossed the road. He had thought probably a day the day before, but it was the only track they'd seen up on the mountain, and he actually followed it in there, and it had been laying down there, he thought, for a couple, couple three days, and like two feet of snow, and it stood up a great wow. big one. Great big, like 150, yeah. typical. But like oh, I said, 150? They, yeah, things are different, uh, you know, up there, I think, than than these deer you guys are hunting down here for sure. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely. And I it, think that's definitely. where I need to start moving if I'm going to start hunting them again because it's just, they've wound down up there for sure. So, yeah, and migratory, migratory our, deer. Go ahead. Yeah, the migratory deer can make things a lot of fun, though, when you, yeah, if you can get to where they're meeting up with resident deer, kind of like that melting pot. Mm-hmm. Um, so to conclude, like, our big blacktail talk, I could talk about blacktail forever, and this is still kind of a large topic, but uh, let's uh, wrap it up with food source. As far as um, during hunting season, are there certain things that you're, isolating i know that blackberry bushes are a huge food source for black-tailed deer in the winter time um and I, i've learned that like in the oak country that they really like mistletoe um and i don't know about washington but baiting deer is legal in oregon and and uh yeah, is a common practice amongst a lot of folks um how do you you know let's yeah let's Let's hear, let's hear it from, from you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's legal here too. And a lot of guys do that. Um, you know, I put apples out in front of cameras in the summer, just to try to, you know, hold deer there and see who's, who's in the area. But, um, yeah, and I, you know, it's, it's to each his own. If, if people want to hunt over apples, that's fine, uh, to me. Uh, but I think that, you know, when you're talking about rut hunting and stuff, it, it kind of, that's, Food sources are secondary. Um, what I just saw a buck the other day with a doe, um, it was just kind of funny. It was on the side of the road, but I pulled over to watch him, and he was a forkhorn. And what he was doing is, is vacuuming up all these alder leaves that were coming down. And, yeah. and I've seen that a lot. So, you know, they do have a super uh, broad diet. Uh, they're kind of uh, opportunists. Uh, I know they eat a lot of lichens, so if you're in oaks and places uh, that uh, grow in those leafy lichens, they like to vacuum those up too. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of leaves and, 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 and shrubs and stuff like that, but, you know, I think that I, I really don't target food sources too much. The blackberries are a given. You can look at any blackberry bush and see the deer have been nipping off, you know, the ends. And that's a year-round food source because it's kind of an evergreen plant. So, um, right, you know, it, I it's found that if you can find, like, if you go down south where there's oaks everywhere, they're not very significant. But if you go north a little bit where they just start to fade in, those mm-hmm. little tiny meadows of oaks are significant. Or if you yeah. go down south where there's not very much blackberry bushes and you see a blackberry bush. It becomes really yeah. significant. That, that's some of the things I've been uh, kind of as far as trying to hunt food sources in, in the late season. And, and I mean that by does. Like these does are yeah. hanging out, hammering those things. So try to yeah. hunt around them. 
Yeah, and if you looked at any clear cut and you see where the maple shoots are coming out of a stump, I mean, they, they shape yeah. those things like one of those shrubs at Disneyland, you know. There's like Mickey Mouse yeah. and all the different animal shapes. Because <laughs> they, yeah. they love those tender shoots when they're coming up and they'll just sit there and just gnaw those things down. But I, I'm not a big yeah. food source. Yeah, I'm not a big food source hunter, to be honest. Um, I'm more of a behavior hunter. Uh, I try to focus on what deer are doing at different times of the year and try to capitalize on that and try to be where well, they want to be That makes a lot of sense uh, why you've avoided the bait then because I have hunted over bait and it does create like a whole new problem. It's their behavior, cha- it, it, they go unnatural. They're not acting mm-hmm. natural anymore and they get real nocturnal and real spooky-wooky around it. It seems, yeah. but guys do really well over it every year. So, yeah, and I mean uh, that being said, if I find an old apple tree on an old, you know, farm, darn right, I'm going to set up near that. <laughs> you know, right. because it's, for me, it's like that's going to pull deer into that natural food source. I'm going to look at the trails coming in there and and play the wind and and set up on that. You know, I look at food sources no different than whether they're, you know, someone dumping a bucket of apples or hunting over an apple tree, it's the same difference. I, it's like decoys and duck right. So what? You know, I don't, right. no judgment on that. But those, bucks, I mean, I, those bucks are a little more comfortable around an apple tree. I think I've hunt, I've put apples on the ground uh, plenty and, and they're, they're suspect to it. Uh, yeah. Most of them are. Yeah. And like I said, I've, I've done it too. I put apples out and I've put out, um, you know, some guys put out these tube feeders, you know, and put wet cob and stuff in there. And I've done that too for trail camera pictures, but at the end of the day, you got so many squirrels and birds and raccoons and whatnot. It's like you say, it kind of of makes an artificial situation that you can't really predict. Right. And you don't get to learn too much about it. Like, like you said, yeah. learning, you know, about, uh, the, their behavior and, and whatnot. So yeah, I actually, find, well, yeah, I think scent, you know, messing around with scent and, um, is to me way more interesting because then I'm tapping into something that, you know, is a natural curiosity or a, a breeding, you know, urge or something like that. It's, it's just more fun. For me. So, do you have any cutting edge for Tom Ryle ideas about scent or things you are wanting to try and haven't tried or things you haven't concluded? I, you know, I don't think so. I, I, I just keep trying to learn and I keep, you know, some of the things I try don't work and I keep trying them anyway because I figure, you know, it, in my head it makes sense. And I, I, I haven't done extensive research on scent, but over the years I've gotten sort of geeked out on it and I've, done a lot of research and and then I forgot most of what I learned and and I keep going back to doing the simple things like scent drags and 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 capitalizing on the fact that bucks are going to use the wind to their advantage so you know if a deer can walk downwind of a bedding area and smell everything in that bedding area then you know he's going to do that as opposed to going around looking for individual deer so I try to think so, like a buck and try to set up that way. So it sounds like you're really only hunting 10, 12, 15 days or so between the two splits on like prime time days or whatever. How much is calling? Are you rattling still? Are you using that 
that uh, that Dobley uh, are using since like all are all these are you utilizing all these things every time you hit the woods or is this are you just mixing these things in mm-hmm. as you go? I'm 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 definitely being very selective on when I use what where. Um, I might use scent on one place and not use it on another place just because of the scent, the the, the lay of land or the habitat or the size or um, could just be a number of things. Sometimes I just don't. I want to mm-hmm. go super low impact. Um, other mm-hmm. times I know I'm going to be in there for multiple days that I'm going to want to set up differently and maybe you know lay a scent drag through the area and then hunt over it for two or three days. So it's just a kind of a play it by ear, but play I, it by know, ear. Okay. Every, every everything is is deliberate. I, I mean, I I, I'm, I might be experimenting, but it's deliberate based on the wind. Deliberate. The weather. Um, right. Yeah. Well, could you? Uh, we always love to get a story. Could you maybe uh, end this with a? Uh, 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 where you uh, hunted a, a blacktail buck and took him down with your uh, stick bow? Uh, yeah, I, I, not a real glamorous one. It was one I mentioned earlier where I had that buck circle my stand after I shot him and I couldn't find him. <laughs> I had to climb yeah. back up in my stand to, to to kind of pinpoint exactly where I saw him go down. Um, so I was I had worked all day um, at my job and it was uh, after work. It was early season September hunt and um, I have I have a homemade recurve that I built in 1994 and um, I'd always wanted to um, shoot a blacktail with it and um, so I I put up a stand in this clear cut on this real steep hillside and I I'd, I'd scouted it from a distance with uh, binoculars and I counted, I think 13 different bucks in that cut. So I went in there after work, hung my stand, um, literally got in my stand and I leaned over to do something and my clippers fell out of my pocket. And I think they clanked on every tree step (laughs) in that tree. It was the biggest commotion and I was just pissed. It was hot. I was sweating. I was like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, you couldn't. Of all the places those clippers had to fall, they hit my tree steps all the way down. And then then the wind changed about 10 minutes later and started going the exact opposite direction I needed it to go. And so I was like, well, I'm here. I might as well just sit here. And I, I wasn't there 15 minutes, and I heard something. I turned around, and here comes a buck downwind. <laughs> of me uh, somehow he didn't smell me and he came didn't even know I was there he was just side hilling this hill and uh, yeah I, I drew back on him and shot him at about six yards and uh, yeah he did a did a loop and died and that was it it was a very quick hunt after work homemade bow uh, on a public land blacktail so I was pretty happy about that so there are a few dumb blacktails. <laughs> there are, and <laughs> trust me, one that was yeah, yeah. That was one of those. That was one of those. I'd rather be lucky than good days. Oh, yeah. exactly. oh that's awesome. That's so cool. Yeah. Well, uh, we, we really I'm, appreciate your time. Sorry, go ahead, Tom. Oh, I was gonna say I'm gonna be hunting uh, with that bow this weekend as well. So hopefully oh, I can. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Very 
very cool. And actually, uh, the, actually, the, I'm I'm using Ron French's arrows too. Oh, nice. Using some uh, some Ron. Are they a Doug Fir Sherwood shaft? Yep. Yep. That's awesome. That's our flavor. Well, we wish you the the best of luck. Uh, what do you say? You get four days. Yeah, I won't be out all four, but um, I got to work tomorrow, and I'll be hunting, you know, Friday and Saturday and Sunday. Awesome. We'll keep us posted. Uh, uh, we'll be uh, pulling for you. And um, why don't you tell everybody where they can find uh, your stuff? Because you have a lot of uh, you have a blog and some really good information out there for you guys. So why don't you direct them towards that? Yeah, it's um, it's Pacific Northwest Bow Hunting is my site, and it's pnwbowhunting.com and there's a blog tab there and I've been posting a bunch of blacktail stuff here since uh, I guess since the season started kicking off and I, I've got a lot of other articles that were on my old website that I need to get ported over and put on this site as well so I'll keep doing that um, but there's a lot of fresh blacktail content on there right now stuff you can use tomorrow this weekend um, and during the rest of the late season. So, yeah, check it out. Um, I love to hear questions uh, anyone has. I, I love blacktails. I love helping guys out. And, I, again, I'm no expert. I'm just a fanatic freak, and um, I'm obsessed with these deer, and I'm always trying to learn and, and just share information because I, I, I want other people to be successful too. That's so awesome. Uh we we definitely appreciate uh, you as a resource um, for a blacktail nut like me. I I mean, I anything that says blacktail or Roosevelt on it, I'm trying to read it, and then I'm trying to find the guy's number and I'm calling him up. Uh, that's kind of how I got to know you. And um, so yeah, once again, we appreciate uh, you sharing uh, all your experiences in the blacktail woods with everybody. Um, also, I always want to thank the listeners. We've got a uh, Kafaro pack giveaway going on right now. You guys go on to Instagram. We're giving away that pack on Instagram. Um, Tom is also on Instagram, so you can check him out there. Um, we'd like to thank Sherwood Shaft, Kafaro International, Andy Ponce, Dick DeVartry, Compton Traditional, our national traditional bow hunting organization and always keep the wind in your face pick a spot and shoot straight